I'd like to thank Aaron K for sponsoring this week's Torah content. June is less than a month away, which means that I'll soon be transitioning into summer writing mode with more Substack articles and fewer recorded shirim. The bulk of these articles will remain free. However, if you would like to support my Torah and access additional spicy written content, consider becoming a paid subscriber by going to rabbishnewis.substack.com. Hello, I'm Rabbi Matt Schneeweiss, and this is the audio version of the four-page article I wrote and published on my Substack at rabbishnewis.substack.com on February 23rd, 2024, and the article is entitled Titzaveh. Urim Vitumim, the Emergency Outdated Divine Telegraph System. The Urim Vitumim are shrouded in mystery. Virtually everything about them is a matter of disagreement. What they are, how they function, why they're called what they're called, why the Torah has so little to say about them, and why there are so few records of their utilization. For a summary of all the questions and answers on this topic, check out Alha Torah's topic article. But for years, the question I've been bothered by the most is, why were the Urim Vitumim necessary? I now have an approach to answering that question based on the Rambam, the Abravanel, and Kasuto. First, let's go over some basic facts about how the Urim Vitumim worked. It is clear that in addition to being part of the Kohen Gadol's garb, the Urim Vitumim was an oracular device. We know this from the written Torah itself. Quote from Bamidbar 2721, Yehoshua shall stand before Elazar the Kohen and inquire of him by the judgment of the Urim before Hashem. By his word they shall go out, and by his word they shall come in, he and all the children of Israel with him, even all the congregation. End quote. The Oral Torah in Yuma 73a through b provides specifications about the requirements, characteristics, and limitations about of this method of divine inquiry. These details are codified by the Ramam at the very end of Hilchos Kleha Mikdash, chapter 10, Halachos 10 and 11. Quote from the Ramam. In the second temple, they made Urim Vitumim to complete the eight garments of the Kohen Gadol, even though inquiry was not made of them. Why was inquiry not made of them? Because Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit, the definition of which will be examined shortly, was not there. And inquiry is not made to any Kohen who does not speak with Ruach HaKodesh and doesn't have the Shechina, the divine presence, rest upon him. How did they inquire through the Urim Vitumim? The Kohen Gadol would stand facing the Ark, and the Inquirer would stand behind him, facing the Kohen Gadol's back. The inquirer would ask a question such as, shall I go up to war or shall I not go up? He would not ask in a loud voice, nor would he merely think about the matter in his heart. Instead, he would speak in a low voice like someone praying by himself. Immediately, Ruach HaKodesh would enclose the Kohen Gadol and he would gaze at the Choshen, the breastplate, and see with a prophetic Ruach HaKodesh vision telling him either, oh, sorry, he would see with a prophetic Ruach HaKodesh vision either go up or don't go up, in letters protruding from the Choshen towards his face. The Kohen Gadol would answer the inquirer, telling him, go up or don't go up. One should not inquire about two matters at once. If he did inquire of two matters at once, only the first inquiry is answered. Inquiry should not be made by an ordinary person, but only a king, a representative of the court, or one who is needed by the community. As it is stated, before Elazar HaKohen he shall stand, uh, he and all the children of Israel with him, and the entire congregation. The word he refers to the king, all the children of Israel refers to the Mashuach Milchama, the Kohen anointed to lead the people in war, or someone whom the congregation needs to inquire for them. The entire congregation refers to a representative of the high court. End quote from the Rambam's Halachos. The Rambam maintains that Ruach HaKodesh is on a lower level than full-fledged Nebuah, prophecy. For a more comprehensive treatment of this topic, see my article, What is Ruach HaKodesh? For our purposes, it will be sufficient to quote what the Rambam writes about Ruach HaKodesh in the Morah 245. Quote, Ruach HaKodesh consists in the fact that an individual finds that a certain thing has descended upon him and that another force has come upon him and has made him speak so that he talks in words of wisdom or praise or in beneficial statements of rebuke concerning political or divine matters. 
and all this while he is awake and his senses function as usual. Such an individual is said to speak through Ruach HaKodesh. It is through this kind of Ruach HaKodesh that David composed Tehillim and Shlomo composed Mishlein, Kohelis, and Shir Shirim. Daniel and Eov and Divrei Hayamim and all the other Ksuvim have likewise been composed through this kind of Ruach HaKodesh. And it is for this reason people call them Ksuvim since they were written through Ruach HaKodesh. Likewise, every Kohen Gadol who is inquired of by means of the, the Urim Bitumim is on this level. Namely, the level about which the sages said, the Shechina rests upon him and he speaks with Ruach HaKodesh. End quote from the Ramam and the Mordevuchim. Even though the Urim Bitumim operate through Ruach HaKodesh rather than Nebuah, their pronouncements outshine Navua in one important aspect, their irrevocability. The sages in Yuma 73 Bs teach that even though a decree of a prophet can be retracted, the decree of the Urim Bitumim cannot be retracted, as it is stated by the judgment of the Urim, the word judgment implying an irretractable verdict. We are now ready to tackle my question, which I was pleased to discover was raised by the Abravanel on Shemos 2830, along with two related questions. The Abravanel writes, quote, First, if Yeshua was a Navi, a prophet, as scripture testifies in the narratives about him, and as indicated by the fact that the sun stood still for him in the firmament, which is the greatest of miracles, why was it necessary for him to inquire of the Urim Vitumim, which were on a lower level than Nevuah? Yet, scripture states about him, before Eleazar the Kohen, he shall stand and inquire of the Urim Vitumim. Second, the sages said that even though certain prophetic promises can be retracted, the promises of the Urim Vitumim are never retracted. But if the level of Nevoah is higher than the level of the Urim Bitumim, how is it possible that the promises of the latter are never retracted, whereas prophetic promises can be retracted? Third, if the Nevoah of Moshe was above the level of all the other people in that he prophesied whenever he wanted, how is it possible that in the act of using the Urim Bitumim, which is on a lower level than all the Nevi'im, the Kohen Gadol would be ready at all times to attain it on par with the level of Moshe Rabbeinu in his Nevoah? End quote from the Abravanel. Leave it to the Abravanel to ask such candid questions. Here are his answers. Quote, the proper answer to these questions is as follows. Yehoshua's need for the Urim Vitumim was not due to any superiority of Ruach HaKodesh over Nevoah. Rather, it stemmed from the fact that it was not possible for a Navi to receive Nevoah whenever he wanted, with the sole exception of Moshe Rabbeinu. Since it was possible that Yehoshua would not be ready to prophesy at a time of need and would lack knowledge of future occurrences that would befall the nation, therefore divine providence made available this act of consulting the Urim Vitumim so that they could know at any given time what God would do. Since the intended benefit of this institution was the giving of advice after asking about the needs of Israel as a whole, therefore, if the promise conveyed by the Urim Vitumim could be retracted, then its purpose would be nullified since there's no point in receiving an answer uh, if the same doubt remains after the answer was given. For this reason, on account of Hashem's Hashgacha, his providence over the nation, the promises from the Urim Vitumim were never retracted. Likewise, the judgments of the Urim Vitumim only pertained to matters that were close at hand and imminent, such questions as, if I pursue this band of soldiers, will I catch them, and the like. Therefore, such a promise would not be retracted, since there wouldn't be enough time for the recipient of that promise to change from good to bad or from bad to good, such that the decree and promise would change, as the Robag wrote. There are two reasons why this method of divine consultation was available at all times. One, on account of Hashem's hashgacha over the entire nation, so that they should never lack a means of discerning the future, such that it would become necessary to inquire of the omen readers, astrologers, and sorcerers. 
Two, the relative accessibility of Ruach HaKodesh in comparison to the various levels of full Nebuah. Thus, Nebuah would require time and the proper preparation, whereas the Urim Vitumim would be ready for the Kohen, requiring minimal contemplation and preparation to attain their answer, which would not be possible with Nebuah. End quote from the Bravanel. To sum it up, the Urim Vitumim enabled, uh, enabled Sorry, the Urmitumim enable national leaders to ascertain God's will about matters pertaining to Israel's collective welfare at all times, even when Nevoah was unavailable. Like a telegraph system, which is simple and limited in comparison to a telephone, the Urmitumim allow for only the most basic inquiries with binary responses that can be spelled out in two or three words. During the early part of the 19th century, the telephone was on the rise as the preferred mode of communication due to its vast superiority. But in emergency scenarios where telephone telephone communication was unavailable, the more antiquated telegraph proved useful. I found the Abravanel's answers to be compelling and would have ended this article here. But something in that last paragraph caught my eye. His statement, quote, such that it would become necessary to inquire of the omen readers, astrologers, and sorcerers, end quote. This reminded me of the Torah's description of the of a role played by Nevi'im, quote from Devarim 18, 13 through 15, you shall be wholehearted with Hashem your God. For these nations that you are possessing, they hearken to the astrologers and diviners. But as for you, not so has Hashem your God given you. A prophet in your midst from your brethren like me shall Hashem your God establish for you. To him shall you hearken, end quote. Moshe Rabbeinu openly acknowledges that Hashem gave Bnei Israel Nevi'im so that they would not make recourse to astrologers and diviners, as was the practice of the idolatrous Canaanite nations. According to the Abravanel, this is one of, of the reasons why Hashem gave Bnei Israel the Urim Vitumim, lest they seek out this type of prognostication in a derech avodazara, idolatrous manner. Umberto Casuto, in his commentary on Shemos 2830, takes this approach and runs with it. While he has a radically different view on what the Urim Vitumim were and how they worked, See the aforementioned Al-Hatorah topic article for details. His theory about why Hashem gave us the Urim Vitumim takes the reasoning mentioned by the Abravanel in passing and elevates it to the level of primacy. Kasuto writes, quote, The desire to know God's will and intent in important matters is natural to man's heart. The religions of the ancient Near East would attempt to satisfy this desire through different means. In Mesopotamia, the practice of omen reading and divination were widespread. Anyone who was about to engage in a significant endeavor wouldn't dare execute it without first consulting the priest, called a beru, who acted as an omen reader and diviner so that he could hear from his mouth the intent of the gods. The methods of omen reading varied. Hepatoscopy, gazing at a liver. Bellomancy, divination by means of arrows, referred to in Yechezkel 21-26. Astrology, discerning signs in the heavens. Ornithomancy, studying the movements of birds, and much, much more. Side note, I was so happy I got to use those words. Okay. The Torah opposes all forms of omen reading and divination and completely forbids them. However, the Torah did not want to completely lock the door on this natural inclination in man's heart. Therefore, the Torah gratified this desire by reducing it to the bare minimum, namely by legislating that making an inquiry of God is permitted only to a leader of the people and only on behalf of the community, and established a form which would not include any violations of omen reading or divination. End quote from Kasuto. This conception of the Urim Vitumim follows in the footsteps of the Rambam's infamous explanation of the Avodos HaKorbanos, the sacrificial temple service. Rambam in the Mornivuchim 323, sorry, 332, maintains that Hashem would have, quote unquote, preferred not to incorporate Korbanos into the Torah at all. However, 
quote from the Rambam, since the universal practice in those days and the general mode of worship to which the Israelites were accustomed consisted in sacrificing animals in those temples which contained certain idols, bowing down to them and burning incense before them, therefore his, capital H, wisdom and plan did not require the discontinuation, abandonment, and abolition of all these forms of worship. For this would have been contrary to the nature of man who clings to what he is accustomed. It is for this reason that Hashem allowed these kinds of service to continue. He transferred to his service that which had formerly served as a worship of created beings and of things imaginary and unreal and commanded us to serve him in the same manner, namely to build for him a temple, to offer sacrifices before him, to bow down to him, and to burn incense before him. Through this divine plan, it was accomplished that the traces of Avodazar were wiped out and the great true principle of our religion, the existence and oneness of God, was firmly established. This was achieved without repelling people or making them feel strange by discontinuing the types of service to which they were accustomed, which were all they knew. End quote from the Ramam. The same is true, argues Kasuto, with regards to the Urim Batumim. In an ideal world, Bnei Israel would rely on their chachma, wisdom, in decisions about war and other national affairs. Unfortunately, the primitive need to consult an oracle before making such decisions was so powerful that if Hashem hadn't provided an outlet for them to engage in this form of inquiry, Bnei Israel would have sought it out in the prohibited practices of Avodah Zarah. For this reason, Hashem begrudgingly, quote-unquote, gave them the Urim Batumim. The editors of the Koran Tanakh of the Land of Israel, Exodus, cite modern scholarship to corroborate Kasuto's theory, as noted in their commentary on Shemos 2830. Quote, Mesopotamian peoples, including Sumerians, Akkadians, and Amorites, used oracles. Diviners, including the ones known by the title of Bayru, would read omens from sacrificial animal entrails. In Mesopotamia, the messages received from these divinations were in the form of a binary yes or no to questions, and favorable or unfavorable in regard to the outcome of specific events. In the Urim Batumim, the messages came in the form of a binary response as well, but derived from a single higher source, coming from the one and only God. End quote. Kasutu points to the written Torah's sparse treatment of this topic as literary evidence for his theory. Quote, After the time of David, we don't find any additional information about the use of the Urim Batumim, whether because the accounts of it happen to not have been passed down to us, or because B'nai Israel's use of them in this manner of divine inquiry didn't last beyond the Davidic monarchy. Perhaps the second reason is the main reason. Ultimately, the, the permission to inquire of the judgment of the Urim Batumim was a sort of concession or acquiescence. Namely, that the Torah temporarily tolerated this in order to satisfy, in the most minimal way, the people's yearning. This is why the matter didn't last. And it mentioned it in the initial presentation of our Parsha, only in passing, as a secondary purpose of the Choshen, since its primary and essential purpose was explained in the previous verse. Later on, when the spiritual development of the people of Israel made it possible to refrain from utilizing this waiver, the heads and leaders of the nation refrained from continuing its usage. And Urim remained as a revered and sanctified memorial of the earlier period without any practical purpose. End quote from Kasuto. Um, I want to change the word waiver to something else. Uh, I'll just say this, uh, this concession. Okay. Or this allowance, maybe. Okay. All right. Back to the article. Rambam holds that the oracular function of the Urim Batumim ceased in the Second Temple era because there was no longer Ruach HaKodesh. Abravanel holds that the Urim Batumim could no longer function once the ten tribes of Israel were exiled and the divine name written by Moshe, which powered the Urim Batumim, was hidden. In contrast, Kasuto maintains that the Israelites had outgrown the Urim Batumim and that this was part of the divine plan all along. To his mind, the yearning to consult the Urim Batumim in a more advanced age would be akin to favoring the outmoded and inefficient telegraph over the use of modern technology. It may still come in handy at times, especially in emergencies, but it has long outlived its usefulness. 
Although the Abravanel and Kasuto disagree on the extent to which the Urim Vitumim were endorsed by Hashem, they both see this institution as an expression of divine compassion. According to the Abravanel, Hashem gave us the Urim Vitumim so that we'd have an emergency telegraph line directly to God when other methods of divine communication were unavailable. According to Kasuto, Hashem made this temporary concession to human nature because the nation had not yet reached the level of maturity to do without it. If you've gained from what you've learned here today, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Alternatively, if you would like to make a direct contribution to the Rabbi Schneeweiss Torah content fund, my Venmo is at matt-schneeweiss and my Zelle slash Chase QuickPay and PayPal are mattschneeweiss at gmail.com. Even a small contribution goes a long way to covering the cost of my podcast and will provide me with the financial freedom to produce even more Torah content for you. If you would like to sponsor an article, share, or podcast episode, or if you are interested in enlisting my services as a teacher or tutor, you can reach me at rabbishnewas at gmail.com. Thank you to my listeners for listening. Thank you to my readers for reading. And thank you to my supporters for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.